Hello, Derek Thorne here with the Audio Journal of Cardiovascular Medicine, and this is our final daily news brief coming direct from the European Society of Cardiology Congress in Vienna. Shortly, we'll be hearing about which patients benefit most from drug-eluting stents, and some possible differences in the way to treat women and men with acute coronary syndromes. First, though, new criteria are needed to help you select your patients for cardiac resynchronization therapy, according to the analysis of the PROSPECT trial results. Stefano Gio told Sarah Maxwell about the study and the reservations he has about current echocardiographic criteria. We enrolled more than 400 patients with standard uh, indications of CRT, and then uh, all the patients were implanted with CRT and then uh, an echocardiographic examination was performed at baseline and after six months of therapy. And then we looked at uh, the potential predictive ability of some predefined echodysynchrony measures. Which patients were included? So heart failure patients uh, with ejection fraction below 35%, QRS duration greater than 130, so conventional indication according to guidelines to CRT. And how did you go about that echo assessment? What was the echo assessment? Uh, well, the echo assessment was uh, done blinded into three core labs, one core lab in US, Atlanta, one European core lab in Pavia, and another European core lab in London. And you looked at clinical and echocardiac response at six-month follow-up. So can you give me some of those figures? So the results are comparable with uh, previous studies. From 60 to 70% of patients improved either clinically or echocardiographically at six months. So this is proportional responders which is comparable with uh, what we knew from the literature. Then we tried to see if the patients who met those dyssynchrony uh, criteria predefined did better than patients uh, who did not meet the dyssynchrony criteria. And did you see that they did do better? Yes, we saw that they did do better in a statistically significant way, but the predictive accuracy, so the sensitivity and specificity was not so high. So statistical significance uh, was there, but overall the extent of the improvement was not so much. So at the moment, we cannot recommend to all the world to do one single measure, echo measure, and then decide about implantation. We have to continue to study. So this is not the end of the story yeah. yet, but what is so important about this study that's come out of your findings? For the first time, uh, we have recognized that there is great variability in some of the echo measures, especially in TDI. So research now will be focused on how to eliminate variability, because previously everybody was sure that those the synchrony measures, had, there was no variability, which is not true. Second, it's also probably interesting to say that uh, there is not one single measure, but maybe we will see the most correct approach is general, global approach to the patient, rather than looking for the single major number. So what are the overall clinical conclusions here for the practicing community? Continue to study, become expert, understand which are your mistakes, uh, try to eliminate, try to understand which is the source of variability, and continue to use it.
That was Stefano Gio from the San Matteo University Hospital in Pavia, Italy. And Nicola Solomon asked the session discussant Cecilia Lind what she made of the study. Well, I think there's been high hopes that adding mechanical desynchronous criteria to the present criteria of broad QRS would increase the response to CRT. And the prospect is the first step in that it used the single mechanical asynchronous criteria that had previously been shown to increase response to CRT, but only in single centers. It took all these criteria, 12 of them, to assess whether in a multi-center setting they would also increase response to CRT. And the study failed to show that, but the analysis of the prospects is not complete yet. It might well be that adding these criteria together in a certain way will be predictive of an increased response to CRT. But I think one of the main messages in the study is that the methodology is very complex. And if you put it in a broad clinical setting, it is maybe too complex to date. The reason I say this is that even in these standards that were specially trained to assess these mechanical dyssynchrony criteria, even with this training, the yield, that is whether what they measured could actually be analyzed by the core centers, wasn't uh, very impressive. It went down to 50% for tissue Doppler measurements and was a bit higher for simpler echocardiographic measurements like interventricular delay. Could you just reiterate what the main point is we should be taking from this study? and also what clinicians should be looking into doing. First of all, the decision to implant a CRT should remain the same. Clinical symptoms, left ventricular dysfunction and a wide QRS as a sign of ventricular dyssynchrony. And no patient should be excluded from CRT because they do not have mechanical dyssynchrony criteria. And I know this has been done, but it's clearly faulty at the present time. Furthermore, the ECHO community should really elaborate the methods for establishing mechanical dyssynchrony criteria. It should be much simpler. It should be based on the various levels of dyssynchrony, AV dyssynchrony, intraventricular dyssynchrony and interventricular dyssynchrony. And if they can come up with a formula, either um, three measures that predict a response or at least one that is better predictive than the others, then methodology might be ready to set into clinical practice. But in my mind, that takes a few more years of elaboration before it becomes reality. That was Cecilia Lind of the Karolinska University Hospital speaking with Nicola Solman at the ESC Congress here in Vienna. A study from Sweden suggests that women with non-ST elevation acute coronary syndromes do better if they undergo selective invasive treatment rather than routine invasive treatment. 184 women were randomised in the OASIS-5 study to receive either early routine coronary angioplasty, and if appropriate this was followed by PCI within seven days, or to wait and perform angiography only if symptoms of angina occurred. Follow-up was for two years, and Sarah Maxwell got more from study author Eva Swan. They were randomised for fondaparinox or enoxaparin, and we asked the patients, the women with a special information sheet, if they wanted to, uh, be, if they agreed to be included also in this women's sub-study. Given the, the results that we don't really know, at least in Sweden and in Poland, it was not very difficult, it seems. So in this study, women were randomised either to routine invasive or selective invasive approach. What did you see? The results were that there was no benefit at all from the routine invasive strategy. Uh, on the contrary, it, it could be worse to, to do, do it too 
fast in the women and to wait and see and have a selective invasive when the women have objective signs of of uh, ischemia and had shown that they were really at high risk then then it was uh, then they there was no harm at least there was no benefit and actually more mortality for those women who underwent routine invasive treatment were you surprised by this result yeah, I was surprised by the results because there were so many more deaths, 8 to 1, in the routine invasive. But you must remember that this is underpowered. If we had had all the 1,600 women, maybe the numbers shouldn't have been like this. We, we don't know, really. Yeah, it, it was rather small numbers that we're talking about here. So, I mean, is this a chance finding? could be a chance finding, but taken together with the previous studies, as I said, uh, FRISC-2, RITA-3... Uh, especially the trend and the meta-analysis that we did show that it is there is maybe no benefit to do, to be so fast with the women with NSTE ACS. As we say, it was underpowered. But is this enough evidence to suggest a change of thought to women patients? You mentioned earlier an idea of having equal treatment as men, but that doesn't necessarily mean the same. This this study cannot cannot and should not change the, the way of treating. But I would like to tell everybody to be a bit more cautious when you cath early the women and think properly before you do a revascularization. I don't think the cath in itself causes this, but it's a revascularization and maybe, maybe, maybe the bleeding complications. It's, it, at least it's no harm to wait and see for some more days and maybe some more weeks in, in those women that don't show very, very high risk in the beginning. That was Eva Swan from University Hospital Linköping in Sweden. And after the presentation, I got the thoughts of Eckhart Fleck of the Deutsche Herzzentrum in Berlin. I think if one arm has only one death and as an endpoint and the other seven or eight, that cannot be discussed basically and cannot be interpreted. So what I think is still even if the notion that women are undertreated is worldwide now the, the normal uh, way to, to look at that means only that we, we didn't do the proper studies in the proper way. And that means uh, one would have to have women who are in danger for the disease which obviously is 10 years later than men, and there have to be data for that. And usually all the big studies end with 70 years, and uh, obviously that's underpowered for women because in that age range there are not enough women for study power. So we, we have to change that by doing special studies, including older patients. Do you think that can happen? Will it be possible? Well, it, it will come because uh, the age range is expanded now to in, in the direction of 80 at least. And uh, there will be a proper question to, to ask, will uh, for elderly patients all bleeding complications, other complications just increase because of age? And this is, to my mind, completely open question because nobody has data on that. And even if it seems to be so, I think it's not a valid uh, statement because there is no data on that. That was Eckhart Fleck of the Deutsche Zentrum in Berlin. Now, finally in this programme, are drug-eluting stents effective for patients with a high risk of clinical restenosis? 
Raul Moreno of the University Hospital La Paz in Madrid has data to suggest that they do benefit those patients, and this could have implications for current off-label use of these stents. His team did a meta-analysis of 31 randomized trials with a total of 12,000 patients, and he gave me the details at the ESC. During the last year, it has been assumed that in higher risk patients, the safety of drug-eluting stents could be lower than in patients with low risk of restenosis. But uh, theoretically, in patients with high risk of restenosis, the clinical benefit of drug-eluting stents should be higher. So what we have done is to evaluate the results from 31 randomized trials that have compared drug-eluting stents and bare-metal stents. And we have observed that as the risk profile of the study population increased, the clinical benefit of using drug-eluting stents also increases without affecting safety of drug stents at least during the first year. Um, you mentioned that you looked at 31 trials, so quite a large population, and yet do you need further study on this question prospectively? Yes, uh, what I think it's important now is to complete the, uh, a long follow-up of the trials, uh, three or even four, or better even uh, more time of all of the trials in order to see the safety of lagrimal stents versus metal stents according to the risk profile of the study population. How does this relate to the current off-label use of uh, drug-eluting stents as well? Yes, I think that the on-label or off-label use of diagnostic stents it is not applied in the practice, but uh, because even in the US, I think that many of the drug-eluting stents are used in theoretically off-label indications because, uh, for example, two or three years ago, we could say that uh, chronic total occlusions are an off-label indication or uh, in stent restenosis, but now, in 2007, there are some randomized trials that have shown that, for example, drug-eluting stents are better than bare metal stents in, for example, in stent restenosis or chronic total occlusion. So, uh, I think that the um, classification of or label or or uh, and off-label indications of drug stents may have a lot of criticisms. So finally, what do you think is the key message coming out of your study? I think that the key message is as the risk of events in patients treated with metal stents increases, uh, the clinical benefit of using drug stents also increases. Raul Moreno of the University Hospital La Paz in Madrid. That's it for this programme and for our coverage of the ESC Congress in Vienna. But do keep looking out for more news from the Audio Journal of Cardiovascular Medicine. And until next time, from myself and the team, it's goodbye.